in the opening verses of Mark 6 that we began to study last week. We witnessed, as Phil taught us, the result of unbelief. The truth had been declared, yet the people, some of them very close to Jesus, found reasons not to believe. Look at chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives and in his own house. Now he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Then he went about the villages in a circuit, teaching. This rejection of Christ, it comes on the cusp, on the edge of a great increase in the spiritual warfare of Jesus Christ against the world and against the enemy, Satan. In verses 7 through 13, then, Jesus does not draw back. He doesn't draw back at this point, but on the contrary, he sends out his apostles in six groups of two men each to multiply his ministry that he has been modeling before them. Now think back as we have begun to study Mark chapter 6. And look at all the miraculous power in preaching, healing, and demon deliverance that Jesus has demonstrated so far. And now, He sends forth that same ministry power, literally that same ministry power, in six, or times six, to sweep through Galilee one last time before He begins to gradually press toward Jerusalem for the appointed time of His crucifixion and resurrection. The amazing work of God through these six pairs of disciples is a preview of what will take place after Christ ascends into heaven and the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in His children. But this warfare, this warfare of Christ against Satan and the world is not a fictional drama void of real bloodshed, pain, and death. Sin is crushing. It destroys Sin fills the hearts of men and women alike with devastating consequences. It gains temporary territory and delivers death blows that appear final. So, at the same time that Jesus' ministry was flourishing in Galilee, ominous, dark events were taking place elsewhere in Israel. Now, King Herod heard of it, or heard of him, for his name had been well known. And some of the people said, well, John the Baptist is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. You see, there was a great popularity of the power of Christ at that moment. Popularity of Christ's power. This story this morning opens up one of the most dramatic narratives of the New Testament. There are several individuals that play significant roles throughout this account. And as each of them enters the event, I'm going to try to provide relevant details of their lives. But please, please keep in mind, they are all real men and women. They're not fictionally created characters. God created each of them in His own image. And they struggled and sinned and failed as you and I. This is story, the story is not just a parable and an object lesson. It's not a moral fable. It is a historical event that took place in first century A.D. 
The Creator, Lord God, offers to teach us much if we will seek Him as we look at this. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come this morning, we come to a very dramatic, uh, sin-filled, bloodied episode in the life of Your people. We know that all Scripture is given by God. It is given as His breath, inspired, God-breathed. And we know that these passages, Lord, come from you, so please speak to us. Allow us to understand you, to see you, to know you. Lord, help us to see ourselves. As the Scripture says, that we would look as, as in a mirror, we would not just walk away, but we would obey. Lord, we need your Spirit to, to reveal to us the truths. So please be at work among us. And thank you so much that you have given us this word. Amen. Now, King Herod. This is Herod Antipas. He is the seventh son of Herod the Great. Herod Antipas was officially identified by Matthew as a tetrarch, which literally means a ruler of a fourth. You see Herod Antipas right there in the middle. His role as ruler was, it was nothing like an actual king. Rome reigned over the entire region and far beyond. Rome appointed regional governors or supervisors like Herod Antipas to serve on a local level so they could keep a close eye on the activities of the citizens in each of these regions. A tetrarch like Herod Antipas certainly had power over the locals. He could inflict much pain and suffering, which he did. But if he happened to step outside of the will of Rome, he was either severely, severely disciplined, exiled, or even executed. Now his father, Herod the Great, is up there at the top. Herod the Great had ten wives. You see six of them to the left. Doris, Phaedra, Pallas, Elpis, and two unnamed others. And then you see the other four directly below him. Mariamne the first, she was Hasmonean. Malthus, a Samaritan. Cleopatra of Jerusalem, that's not the same Cleopatra of, of Egypt, it's a different Cleopatra. And then Mariamne the second of Jerusalem. Now, we're going to see a lot of history this morning as we go through this. And I, uh, my prayer is that we will not get lost in those details but at the same time, I think it's really important that we understand this so we see the depth of what was going on at that time. So there's the beginning of the family tree. Herod the Great ruled the entire region of Israel from 37 B.C. to 4 B.C. He was in authority at the time of Jesus' birth. And we know that he was an extremely vile and murderous man. Chabad.org, a Jewish history website, states, In 36 B.C., an Idumean named Herod took over as king of Judea. Known as Herod the Great, he apparently suffered from paranoia and ruled with ruthless brutality. He put to death 46 leading members of the Sanhedrin and killed all the remaining members of the Hasmonean family, including eventually his own wife and children. He was a distant descendant of Esau, not of Jacob, Therefore, he was not a Jew. But over time, he became a Jewish proselyte, and he was very familiar with the Jewish customs 
and religion. He actually executed one of his own sons, Antipater, five days before his own death. Now near the time of the birth of Jesus Christ, we know that Herod the Great murdered all the male babies in the region near Bethlehem. Why? To eliminate any potential threat to his throne. Now prior to his death, Herod the Great had prepared a will. And he would divide his realm up into four territories to be distributed to his heirs. Now from that will, we have Herod Antipas. He inherited the rule of the region of Galilee and Perea. And you will see that Galilee is up there near the Sea of Galilee towards the top. It is near or to the, on the west side. And then we see Perea. It comes along the Jordan River on the east side. And that is the region that Herod Antipas had responsibility for. Along the west coast of the Sea of Galilee, if you look there very closely, you will see that Antipas founded his capital city. And he named it Tiberias in honor of the reigning emperor at that time. Herod's rule was for 43 years, from 4 B.C. to A.D. 39. It was a long one compared to most of his peers. Now we're going to look at more details about Herod Antipas. They will be fleshed out in the scriptures of Herodotus. But we read in Mark chapter 6 and Matthew 14, where it explains that at a particular point in time, Herod the Tetrarch heard a report about Jesus. Now what Herod hears is not only about Jesus' own work in great preaching, healing, and demon deliverance, but it is apparent that Herod is also being told what has recently been happening throughout his entire domain of Galilee. Herod has been at the helm of Galilee for 30 years now, and never before has he heard accounts like what he's hearing now. And what is it from? It's all as a result of the move that Jesus has made described in Mark 6 and Matthew 10. Let me read that. Jesus had called the twelve to Himself, and He began to send them out by twos and gave them power over unclean spirits. And as you go, Jesus said, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. So they went out and preached that people should repent. Can you imagine if that took place throughout the region of Kansas and there were six groups, pairs of men going everywhere and people were be delivered, being delivered out of every kind of sickness, emotional dis, dis, uh, disabilities or psychological trauma, uh, demon possession. Some are even being raised from the dead. Our governor would be very curious about what is happening, wouldn't she? So is Herod Antipas. What is happening? Because of this mass movement of crowds of thousands and perhaps tens of thousands that are following Jesus and these amazing reports and these reports of never before seen miraculous deeds that are being done not only by Jesus but by six pairs of his apostles, Herod is on point. What is going on? Who is this who has unleashed such amazing power across Herod's own region of Galilee? 
Who is it? Some said, according to this, John the Baptist is risen from the dead. And therefore these powers are at work at him. John the Baptist. Who is he? From the very opening verses of the Gospel of Mark, we are introduced to this amazing man. John was the fore, prophesied forerunner of the Messiah of God. Isaiah wrote, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, it said, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. That was John the Baptist. John is also a cousin of Jesus. He is the son of Jesus' Aunt Elizabeth and Uncle Zechariah. Jesus declared, Jesus Himself declared, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet, the humility of John was remarkable. In Mark chapter 1, it says, And he preached, saying, There comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and even loose. Later, this John the Baptist said of Jesus, He must increase, I must decrease. John's location, message, and appearance. They're laid out to us in Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. We'll read 1 through 8, verse 1 of chapter 3 of Matthew. Now in those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea. The Judean wilderness, it was a rugged and desolate location. And he said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. And his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem was going out to him. And all Judea and all the district around the Jordan. This is odd because where John was preaching was not a regular drop-in spot for tourists or travelers. In that day, you only went to the wilderness because you wanted to see John. Otherwise, there were far more attractive places to go. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sin. But when John saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Paramount in John's preaching were the commands to confess sin and to repent. And he pulled no punches. He spoke to all this message of confession and repentance. Others said, maybe this is Elijah. There's a possibility of a prophet. The prophet Malachi had prophesied also that, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Others said it is the prophet. Deuteronomy 18, 15, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst and from your brethren. Him you shall hear, said Moses. Or he is like one of the prophets. But when Herod heard it, what do we read? Herod said, this is John, whom I beheaded. He has been raised from the dead. 
Herod's money was on the strong probability that this is John the Baptist. And we hear in Luke's gospel, Herod at this moment, he says, I myself had John beheaded. Herod speaks with agony. I myself had John beheaded. I beheaded him. The pronoun I here is emphatic. The terror of what he had done to John had not left the mind nor the conscience of Herod. Why was that? The story unfolds, beginning in verse 17. For Herod himself had sent and laid hold of John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. We're going to look at the precipitous events concerning John the Baptist, beginning with the sin that was performed. You see here, the responsibility for John's imprisonment lay solely at the feet of Herod. He knew that. There was no violation of any civil code or Roman law by John. Herod simply ordered his men to imprison John and bound, bound him without just cause. And at this point, John has been incarcerated for about one year. And he has been in the citadel of Machairus. And it's located far to the south near the Dead Sea. And if we look down here at the Dead Sea, you will see in that small red circle a city or a citadel that is located just a little bit to the east. So what motivated Herod to treat an innocent man so cruelly? Why would he do such a thing? It was to pacify a woman. She is introduced here in an unusual manner. Look at that. She's introduced as his brother Philip's wife. Not as Herod's wife, but as his brother Philip's wife. Why? Because her marriage to Herod was illegitimate. We're going to look at Herodias for a moment. She is the daughter of Aristobulus up there who was murdered in 7 B.C., she is his daughter. He is a brother to Herod Antipas. He is a brother to Philip. She is a niece to each of these men, like Philip and Antipas. She incestuously marries her uncle Herod Philip. And we see him up there, right beside Herod Antipas. Philip, well, Herod Antipas had two brothers named Philip. This particular Philip is the son of Cleopatra of Jerusalem. And he was disinherited by his family. He never assumed any political role that is recorded. Essentially, his only claim to fame was his incestuous marriage to his niece, the infamous Herodias. So let's take a brief look at this perverted mess. Herod Antipas. If we look up here, he was first married to Phasaelus, the daughter of Aretas. And we see that in the bottom right-hand corner, Phasaelus. Her father is Aretas. He is the king of Nabataean Arabia. Nabatea is down here at the south end of the sea, Dead Sea. It is adjacent to Israel at the very bottom. Herod visits his brother Philip. We'll go back to that family tree. 
Herod visits his brother Philip in Rome. While there, he notices Philip's wife. He lusts after her, he covets her, he takes her, and he suffers grave consequences. In fact, the pain of his folly in pursuing Philip's wife, Herodias, never seems to end. King Aretas of Nabatea is furious because of the violation and humiliation of his daughter Phasaelus, whom Antipas has disgraced and divorced. So King Aretas attacks Herod Antipas with vengeance and a fully equipped army and would have destroyed him if the Roman army had not arrived in the nick of time to rescue Herod Antipas. But that is just the beginning of the curse of Herodias on the life of the wretched man Herod Antipas. You see, the Roman emperor Tiberius is eventually replaced by the emperor Caligula. Now Philip... Philip, the tetrarch over Trachonitis and Ituria, up here in the very top right-hand corner, you see Ituria and Trachonitis. Philip was the governor of that area. And this area has been given over to Herod Agrippa, another competitor. So they have a new, you have a change of the emperor, you have Philip died, And so the emperor then gives the property of Philip over to Herod Agrippa. Now, guess who is mad? Herodias. Herodias is furious. She thinks her Herod should have received that territory. This would have enhanced her own wealth and status. In an effort to regain this opportunity, she manipulates her man, Herod Antipas, into talking to his boss, the emperor, about this unfair treatment. It's like, don't you think you should have gotten that raise? Herod Antipas reluctantly journeys to Rome. But in the meantime, Herod Agrippa, to whom Philip's territory had been given, smells a rat coming this way, and he gets to the emperor Caligula first and paints Herod Antipas out to be a threat and a weasel. He probably was not a threat, but he is definitely a weasel. So when Antipas arrives to make his appeal, Emperor Caligula, rather than give Herod Antipas more land to rule, strips Herod Antipas of the region he does have and exiles him and Herodias from their land until their death. Herodias never stopped being the poison that Herod so richly deserved. But how does John the Baptist get drugged into Herod's grossly dysfunctional family. Verse 18. Because John had said to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Here the sin is called out. John had said, or had been saying, if you're interested in this, it is the grammatically, the grammatic of the imperfect indicative. It means to continue or in a literary, to continue in a linear action in past time. So in other words, John kept bringing up Herod's lawless offense against God, and he brought it up over and over again. And this likely included John declaring, You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife, that is your brother's nakedness, from Leviticus 18.16. And if a man takes his brother's wife, it is an unclean thing. He has uncovered his brother's nakedness. They shall be childless. 
Leviticus 20, 21. But Herod is not simply committing the sin of having his brother's wife. His offenses included multiple others. Herod Antipas lusted after and coveted his brother's wife, violating God's command in Exodus 20, 17. And he committed adultery in stealing her away and marrying her, breaking the command of Exodus 20, 14. And in addition to these, some of you may have noticed, according to the family tree, Herod Antipas continues his brother Philip's practice of incest by marrying a woman who was his brother's daughter and also his very own niece. You see, John has moved into a very precarious political position. In the eyes of the queen, in verse 19, in the eyes of the queen, we read, Therefore Herodias held it against him and wanted to kill him, but she could not. You see, John's prophetic cry continued to shine light upon a dark, sinful lifestyle. And Herodias, she wanted that light turned off once and for all. John wrote in chapter 3, he says, And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. This was Herodias. She hated the light that was shown upon her deeds. But it says here, she couldn't kill him. Now isn't that interesting? Herodias has been willing and able to commit a lot of sin in her lifetime. What could possibly prevent her from pulling off one more despicable deed? Verse 20, because Herod feared John. In the eyes of the king, it says, knowing that John was a just and holy man, Herod protected him. And when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. Herod knew, Herod knew absolutely, there was no question about this man, John. No question. What a reputation John's faithful and fearless life had obtained for him. Herod knew, as did all of Israel, John the Baptist was righteous. He loved and obeyed God, but he was also holy, meaning he was sanctified. He was set apart by God. It was apparent to the world that John lived for God's use and glory. Man, would I love to have that said about me. There was no doubt in anyone's mind. You see, Herod now is between a rock and a hard place. He hated John's continuous expose of his sin to the public and during his meetings with him. And clearly the woman he adulterously married Herodias despised the fact that John was still alive. But he also knew that John was God's man. So Herod protected him. Perhaps this is why he was imprisoned in Machairus, a distant 125 miles south of Tiberias, hopefully far from the clutches of his troublesome wife Herodias. Whenever Herod would listen to John, It says he was perplexed. The authorized King James says he did many things. The idea here is that he would hear the declaration and the conviction of his own sin. But John would also tell him the amazing story of this Jesus, this Lamb of God, 
who has come to save man from sin. Conversation with John would cause Herod to think and to act and be unsettled. And there no doubt was no better preacher around than John the Baptist. There was something about John's message that Herod could not let go of. He truly enjoyed listening to this man of God. But then we read an opportune day came. Some of your scriptures say a strategic day. When Herod on his birthday gave a feast for his nobles, the high officers, and the chief men of Galilee. You see, the sin day arrives. It's called an opportune or a strategic or, or a day of benefit. It was particularly opportune for evil. The movers and shakers of Galilee and Perea were all in for this party. This was a man's celebration. It included political operators, business owners, and chief military leaders. These high officers mentioned here are the Kaliarchos. They were commanders of a thousand each, not simply centurions. These are big-time military leaders. And they've all gathered here. These are the chief men of Galilee. These were men of influence and wealth. And evidently, Herod was known for his wild parties. Those in attendance would come with those expectations. One scholar wrote, For the Romans, birthday parties were excuses for uninhibited revelry, often characterized by overindulgence, gluttony, drunkenness, and sexual deviance. And that day, on that particular day, sin's pleasure deceived. Verse 22, And when Herodias' daughter herself came in and danced, and pleased Herod and those who sat with him. Herodias' daughter, mentioned here, is Salome. Salome was born out of Herodias' first marriage to Philip. Commentators all indicate that Salome was probably around 15 to 16 years of age. She is heavily influenced and manipulated by her mother. If you look at the family tree... Later, after this tragic accident, or excuse me, incident, Salome will marry her uncle and also great uncle, the other Philip, who is a regional tetrarch over Iturea and Trachonitis. I won't spend much time trying to describe this dance of Salome. Suffice it to say that it was lewd and provocative. We know this because of the impact it had in pleasing or arousing the many men that were enthralled with their sensuous movements. But we also know it because of the outlandish and disgusting reaction of Herod, coupled with the, revolting reward, the revolting reward he was willing to give to her. The whole party event was sickening, and the performance of Salome was the lowest point of the night so far. But pleasure has a piercing payment. The piercing payment of pleasure. The king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you want, and I will give it to you. He also swore to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. Fueled by a full belly, plenty of wine, and a lust-filled heart, Herod burst out with a boast to Salome and his gifts. And his guests. I'll give you anything you ask. And then he goes another step further. He vows that he will give her up to half his kingdom. When a man is stuffed, drunk, 
and filled with lust, it's not a time to make a vow. And he promises her something that he doesn't even own. He has no kingdom to give. He is more of a glorified custodian of the region than a king. In reality, he could give nothing, for Rome owned it all. It was simply bravado to impress his guests. And sin seizes the opportunity. The opportunity that is sin seized, we read here in 24. So she went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. This was the opportunity that this day was described as. And then comes an odious request in verse 25. Immediately she came in with a haste. It's the word spude. It means to speed to the king and ask saying, I want, to, want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Everything is unraveling at breakneck pace. Immediately, with speed, at once. The response of this young woman to her mother's cold, heartless command is sobering. She may have been in full agreement with her mother that this was the time to get rid of this heckler John. On the other hand, if you had a mother like Herodias, you would not have dared to question or resist, or you could have been next. It becomes painfully obvious that Herod's was the oath of a fool. And the king was exceedingly sorry. Yet because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he did not want to refuse her. Exceedingly sorry. It, it's, it is translated sometimes as grieved all around. He is intensely sad. The pressure of pride, both his peers and his wife's daughter. The word here is herakos. It's translated because of his oath's sake. It's an interesting word because it means the idea of being fenced in. He is restrained. He is trapped by his rash words. He did not want to turn down his, his, this Salome. He did not want to play the fool in front of those he so badly wanted to impress. So what happens? The prophet becomes the prize. Immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded his head to be brought. And he went and beheaded him in prison. Brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. The human head weighs about 11 pounds on average. It is sickening to imagine a 15-year-old girl bearing the bloody, lifeless head of the greatest man the world had known on a plate as a gift to her mother. And when his disciples heard of it, they came and took away his corpse and laid it in a tomb. Enter the faithful men. With their own lives at risk, they courageously and humbly retrieved the body of their brother and teacher. They are in an unusual company of men who at a unique and final moment in life, rise to pay respect to one they loved and served. Saul had such men. In 1 Samuel chapter 31, verse 8, So it happened next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, that they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. And they cut off his head, and stripped off his armor, and sent word throughout the land of the Philistines, to proclaim it in the temple of their idols, and among the people, 
And then they put his armor in the temple of Ashtoreth. And they fastened his body to the wall of Beth Shen. Now when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and traveled all night. And they took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan. And they came to Jabesh and burned them there. Then they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree at Jabesh and fasted seven days. Jesus had such men, particularly Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took the body of Jesus. Courageous men. And then we have an extension of this story. And I call this the burden upon Christ. John's story continues. In Matthew we read, in chapter 14, verse 12, His disciples came and took away the body of John and buried it. And they went and reported to Jesus. Now when Jesus heard about John, He withdrew from there in a boat to a secluded place by himself. The murder of John had a profound effect on Jesus Christ. The creator of the universe, the Lamb of God, the mediator between God and men, left the crowds and found a place alone to be with his Father over this news. You know, it strikes me so hard that the man that Jesus called the greatest of men whose preaching moved the hearts of small and great alike and struck fear in the heart of kings, could be snuffed out by a conniving, hateful woman, a seductive teenager, than a lustful, drunken, wannabe king. It appears most unfair. The prophet who preached to thousands that had streamed out of their comfortable cities to the desolate desert to hear him speak was suddenly murdered in obscurity in some small prison cell with no warning or even a trial. Boom! In this case, sin moved fast. Do not forget that risk. It is just as quickly moving today. And it can multiply and pile upon us in a moment. And boom, it will be done. There are many more things one could conclude about sin from this episode in the Gospel of Mark. But here are two important warnings. Sin and snares. James wrote, chapter 1, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and He Himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. And then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Sin will begin at a level. It will begin at a level like lust, or covetousness, or bitterness. If not confessed and repented of, it will grow to the next level and to the next level until it brings forth death. Sin is satisfied with nothing less than death. In the time of Herod and John the Baptist, 
in the year 2029 or 2021, sin is not satisfied with anything less than death. Herod would lust, covet, and steal his brother's wife in adultery. Eventually, it would darken his soul to the point that he would murder John, the one man that he highly respected and even feared. That's what sin can do. Within a very short time, the stakes would become even higher for this Herod Antipas. This time he would face not the greatest man that had lived, but he would cold court over God's own son, Jesus of Nazareth. Again, this Herod would play the fool, mocking and continuing the process of execution by crucifixion of Jesus Christ. That's what sin can do. Secondly, the danger of straddling the fence. Matthew 6, verse 24. Jesus said, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. You see, Herod, was, he was fascinated with John. He enjoyed listening to him. At the same time, he hated John's light focused on him. And he hated John calling out his sin. He would ignore him, then arrest him, but protect him and listen to him. He could find no peace straddling the fence. It only led to destruction. Jesus says to those of us who sit on the fence, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever desires, desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This was the example of John. There was no question in anyone's mind who he belonged to, who he served. A fellow by the name of Edwards wrote, John, however, was a prophet without price, whose thundering call exposed unrighteousness in any quarter, like the courageous prophets before him. John understood that the proclamation of God's word included moral responsibility. There were no sacred cows in his herd. He did not read the polls before speaking and acting. He protected no special interest group, groups, nor did he predicate what he said and did on the chances of success. Please turn in to Revelation chapter 6 in closing this morning. Revelation 6 verse 9 speaks of a day that is coming. Verse 9. When he, the Lamb of God, Christ Jesus, opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice saying, 
How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer, until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. I pray that God will raise up for us men like these, women with the same character out of our midst. Do not be afraid to be accounted among this unique band of men and women, having died for the name and the glory of Christ, the Savior and King. Come follow Him and give your life fully to Him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we look at the life of John and we, we, we see what has happened. The greatest man, according to your son, that had lived and yet he dies in obscurity at the whim of a 15-year-old and her adulterous, hateful mother. Lord, may we be willing to pay the cost anywhere at any time for the glory of your name. Lord, most of us are weak, somewhat fearful. Make us to be men and women of courage with great faith in the great and powerful God. Thank you for your word this morning. May we live for you until you return for us. In your name we pray, amen.